0: A new law enacted by Vladimir Putin's parliament in the first week of the Ukraine war made it a crime to report news that differed from the official version, penalty 15 years imprisonment. That caused many of the world's news media, which maintained Moscow bureaus, to cease their work there. On this edition of Update One, we'll discuss these developments and the path Putin followed to get there with Lucian Kim, who recently moved to Washington after five years as Moscow correspondent for National Public Radio. I'm Irv Chapman, a longtime member of the National Press Club. And full disclosure, I was a Moscow correspondent for ABC News during the Soviet era. Lucian, you studied Russian language and journalism, and you have a degree from Central European University, which was then in Budapest. And in 1996, was hired by the Christian Science Monitor as Eastern Europe correspondent based in Berlin. In 2003, you moved to Moscow and went to work for a local English-language newspaper, the Moscow Times. Paint a picture of the journalism landscape
1: you encountered when you got there. The journalism landscape in Russia in 2003 was extremely vibrant. There were all sorts of newspapers and magazines. I worked at the Moscow Times, the English language newspaper for Russia. It was founded by a Dutchman, and we published a newspaper five days a week, a real newspaper. It went to the printers and uh, appeared in cafes and restaurants and other distribution points around the city and we were the voice of the expat community. Our job was to keep people informed, of course, before the internet age, and so it played a vital function. I arrived in Moscow, as you said, in 2003. Russia had already transformed enormously from the early 1990s. There was a very vibrant Russian press scene. We had a sister newspaper in our holding called Vedomosti, It was a newspaper that was partially owned by the Moscow Times, partially by the Financial Times of London, and partially by the Wall Street Journal. This newspaper Vedomosti, saw itself as the voice for the business community in Russia. It was possible for Russian newspapers to also criticize the government. This was not much of an issue. The first sign when I was there came during the Beslan school siege in 2004 when terrorists in the Caucasus seized a school and held it for several days, resulting in the storming of the school and hundreds of casualties, including many, many children. And because of the storming of the school, the Putin government came under extreme criticism, and the editor of Izvestia newspaper, the famous Izvestia newspaper, was actually forced out for printing a very graphic picture on the front page of his newspaper. And that was kind of already the sign that things might change for the worse.
0: My recollection of that period was that foreign correspondents could do whatever they wanted to do. They'd go into the halls of the parliament and talk
1: to members of parliament in the hallway, talk to anybody who would talk to them. Foreign correspondents were free to move around and speak to whomever was ready to answer their questions.
0: During the pre-Putin Anything Goes period, foreign publishers created Russian language editions, Newsweek, Forbes, Germany's Axel Springer, Vietnamisty,
1: as you mentioned, what happened to them? If we observe Putin's move to repression and increasing repression, this was a very gradual process. It did not happen overnight. It happened over years. And, for example, the newspaper Vietnamisty, really Russia's premier... Business newspaper, for a long time, the only major newspaper in Russia that had an editorial page that published editorials and op-eds, bringing commentary to its readers. This newspaper began to change when the Russian government limited foreign ownership of Russian media, and because of the stakes held by foreign companies in Vedamisti, this newspaper was undermined through that law and this was repeated with numerous other newspapers and other media holdings.
0: You subsequently spent four years covering government news and business news for Bloomberg, and you also kept tabs on the state-owned energy giant Gazprom, which subsequently helped Putin take control of the major television stations. What happened to the press and your ability to cover Russia during that period?
1: As a foreign correspondent working in Russia, I felt no limitations, but access for foreign reporters got narrower and narrower. So there weren't a lot of people that were ready to talk to you inside the government. Irv, you mentioned how in the 90s it was possible to go into Parliament and talk to people. It was still possible to go into Parliament, but if you could get a good interview with someone was another question. And I noticed this also with the energy company Gazprom, which I covered. I spoke a lot with their main spokesman. But there was very controlled access to top executives, and their message was always very prepared. And so, while I didn't feel anybody was telling me what I could say, I was limited in kind of sources that I could access. And I should say, even ordinary Russians became more and more reluctant to speak with foreign journalists. They were being told that foreign media were fighting an information war with Russia and they became very reluctant to offer an opinion or offer their names together with an opinion.
0: A seminal event for Putin was the demonstrations that broke out in Moscow and across the country in 2011 to protest election fraud in the voting for parliament that gave Putin's United Russia Party a claim on victory, and that Putin himself ran for president after a four-year hiatus, and the election was equally dishonest.
1: How did Putin react, and how did that impact on the press? The protests of 2011 and 2012, as you said, were really a seminal moment. They were probably the biggest challenge to Putin's rule so far. And he reacted with shock. This was something he wasn't expecting. I think his reaction was twofold. In one sense, he really began his crackdown on his critics. People who were involved in the protests faced lengthy jail sentences. How it affected media in general, I would say, was Putin realized at that moment the potential and really the danger for his regime in the internet. Before that, the Putin regime had been actually quite lax in monitoring the internet. That might just be because of the generational difference between him and young Russians, the growing generational gap, I should say. And I think at that moment, his regime realized that news about protests, and about arrests and so forth, were spreading not by conventional media, but but through social media. And in this moment, I think Putin realized he also needed to get a grip on social media, on sort of new and non-traditional ways of communication.
0: Early on, Putin focused on the mass media, mostly television, since Russians largely got their news from TV. How did Putin take control? And at what point did the major national newspapers become government mouthpieces?
1: Putin understood the power of television. And his first move against independent media or media that did not spout the Kremlin line was his assault on NTV, a Russian news channel, which ended up in the hands of Gazprom Media, the media holding of the energy company Gazprom. And NTV today is almost impossible to watch because of its close alignment to the Kremlin. It broadcasts some of the most tendentious hit jobs against Kremlin critics. So NTV is actually very symbolic. His first target when he came into office has now become one of the most loyal mouthpieces of the regime. As I mentioned before, for the newspapers, it was a gradual process, a relatively small portion of the population still reads newspapers, so this wasn't a top priority. But what we're seeing is that even newspapers now are very limited in what they can say.
0: You mentioned that Putin turned attention to the internet until he made a final grab as part of his information war. How did he go about that?
1: Well, Putin's grab for the internet was also a gradual process. I think it only began to dawn on him and his entourage what kind of power social media had, beginning with the Arab Spring, and then the protests which broke out in Moscow and, and other Russian cities in 2011. Putin began to think of the so-called sovereign internet, and this is something that his technicians began to work on very intensively. The idea that Russia could somehow shut itself off from the global internet while maintaining an internal internet. The way the Kremlin advertised this was that this was a defensive project in case enemies, primarily the United States, would shut off Russia from the internet. But this was a project that he developed in this idea of information space in Russia protected from outside. At the same time, we saw the main government censor going after major internet companies like YouTube, and Facebook, and Twitter, and TikTok for spreading news about protests. When opposition leader Alexei Navalny was arrested in early 2021, the Russian internet censor went after the major social media companies for spreading information about so-called illegal or unsanctioned protests. Later, when Navalny's organization was labeled extremist by the government, That also gave a legal basis for the Putin regime to demand social media take down extremist material. So it was a slow but steady strangulation.
0: China in recent years has put the squeeze on foreign news bureaus and several have now located their China watchers in neighboring countries. Is the same thing going to happen with coverage of Russia?
1: What's happening at foreign bureaus in Moscow is truly unprecedented. The law says media are not allowed to refer to what's going on in Ukraine as a war. Instead, they should use the government's euphemistic term, special military operation. It's very ambiguous. Foreign companies that have suspended their operations in Moscow don't yet know if that applies to them, and they don't want to take any chances. And sort of this chilling effect of this law is unprecedented. The New York Times, for example, operated in Moscow throughout the Cold War. We're really entering uncharted territory. As journalists, you don't know what you're allowed to report anymore. I spoke to one colleague who's a foreign correspondent in Moscow, and he said he's been reduced to filing brief news bulletins, nothing more than that, for fear of somehow contradicting this new draconian law.
0: Young Russians have been major customers of the same well-known social networks as everybody else in the world, and they've been able to travel and learn how other countries are governed. Can all that be suddenly repressed? Can Putin create a Chinese-style Great Firewall?
1: This is a question that I put to the editor of one independent media outlet just a couple of years ago, and he could not imagine that that would happen. He thought it was too late, that the cat was already out of the bag. There was just no way of reversing that, but his media outlet has been now barred from the internet. I believe he's even been labeled a foreign agent. So we're seeing things happening in Russia today that were very hard to imagine even just a couple of years ago. Given the current situation and the fact that the government can use almost any pretext to close down Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, it's very possible that Russians will soon find themselves living in a very isolated world.
0: I've been discussing the media landscape in Russia with Lucian Kim, who was until recently the Moscow correspondent for National Public Radio. I'm Irv Chapman for the National Press Club in Washington. Thank you, Lucian.
1: Thanks so much, Irv.
0: Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to update1podcast, that's update, the number one podcast, at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One.